Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 8 as we turn to God's Word together. Matthew chapter 8. Before we read from verse 5, let's pray together. Lord, we gather around your word together tonight, medicine for our souls. In the power of your Holy Spirit, we gather together around your beautiful Son, Jesus, the healer of our souls. We come to you, Lord, just as we are. Some of us, Lord, we're, we're wounded and we're hurting. Others of us, Lord, we're tired. Others are, are nursing a first love that feels it has all but died. And others, we're angry, Lord. We're resentful. And we feel it's not fair. But already we feel sense a word from you in the power of your spirit, we are welcome here in this place. Lord, we pray for James, your servant. We pray that your spirit will rest upon him. We pray that you will take his preparation, take his, the struggle in your word that he will have gone through And we pray that your spirit will take his words and make them to us the very words of life. So, Lord, we commit our time together to you. Lord, only say the word and we shall be healed. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to read from verse 5 together. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come to heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word. And my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Amen. May God bless his word to us. I wonder what comes into your mind when you hear the word authority. Put your hands up if you think it's a good word. Put your hands up if you think it's a bad word. Put your hands up if you think it depends. (laughs) Of course the point is authority can mean different things in different contexts. If I say, he grew up without an authority figure, is that good or bad? I take it that the kind of image we think of at this moment in time is of perhaps a teenager, often a teenage boy, who's gone off the rails. There's been no father figure that's been around, and the single mum has been struggling to restrain and hold him back as the testosterone kicks in and the gang allure becomes greater. How about, I'm going to report you to the authorities. It's a vague description of those in power. Their job is to put things right. You hope and expect they will, but there's a certain sinister kind of feel, isn't it? Report to the authorities. You kind of think North Korea... Or how about Professor Chris Whitty, a leading authority on COVID? He's an expert in the field. Not always right, not always moral in judgments, whatever it might be, but a person with top knowledge and credibility. Or how about Boris Johnson has lost his authority? It's possible to lose authority but still have the trappings of power. How so? Because people perceive that moral failings, whatever it might be, mean that they've lost credibility, they've lost respect. I think of a guy that I know. He often would lose his temper with his children when they were younger and they ceased to respect him. They ceased to take his words seriously. One of the joys of the role that I've got here and serving and developing teaching and training events through the year is partnerships with other organisations. And one organisation we're in partnership with is one called Forge Leadership. We run a Keswick Leadership course. We'll hear more about that through the week. But they've done some research on millennial leaders, that is, leaders who've turned 18 after the millennium. So they're kind of 18, I guess, 18 to 35, 38, something like that, And what was very interesting in the research they did on millennials was that they found that the default posture, if you're under a certain age, when you go into an organisation, is a lack of trust in those in leadership. That's the default position. Trust has to be earned rather than it's automatically assumed. I guess it's presumably because they've looked up at the next generation and seen how often... People have behaved with a lack of credibility. 
So I guess we'd want to say, wouldn't we, that it's not authority itself that's the problem, but it's what kind of authority, who carries it out, and how. Isn't the world crying out for an authority that combines, that seems to me, three things? An expertise, they know what to do in the situation. A moral credibility, that is a person who is authentic. A person who is not out to feather their own nest or their own career, but has got the best interests of those with whom they're exercising this authority. And they've also got the power or the right to do it. You often have two of those, but not three. Some say, look, James, the church should really keep out of politics. But this isn't a place to make comments about political parties and persuasions and so on. But it is absolutely impossible for the church to be keeping out of politics because Jesus was political, because he spoke about and modelled and illustrated what is leadership and what is authority and how it should be exercised and what is politics if it's not those things. But don't you long for, as I do, someone with this expertise who knows what to do, that moral credibility, the person who's authentic, And we heard that so much this afternoon about dear Peter Maiden, those of you who are here. And then the power and the right to carry it out. And we meet such a person, don't we, in Matthew chapter 8. If you've got it shut, do turn it open again. Matthew chapter 8. Because as it begins, Jesus is coming into Capernaum. That's the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. You may remember he's been teaching famously up on the Sermon on the Mount... And he's finished teaching. And do you remember what it says at the end of chapter 7, verse 28? When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. When he came down from the mountain, of course, crowds follow him. And as he walks into Capernaum, as we heard last night, he bumps into and encounters a leper on the way, a man with a skin disease, and he heals him. And then he comes into Capernaum. Later at the start of chapter 9, verse 1, the Capernaum is described as his own town. Seems to me this was the place where Jesus made his base, his home base, if you like. And then a centurion comes up to him. I don't know what image you have in mind when you hear the word centurion. They would typically in the ancient world look after a significant cohort of men, maybe 80 or more, something like that. They were usually a tough nut, a kind of fighter, the first over the top. And a number of them were seen to exercise pretty harsh discipline. There's a story of a a man called Lucilius who was a centurion. In the Tacitus' annals, a Roman historian. And he got the nickname from mutinous soldiers, bring another. Why? Well, he would go and get a big vine branch, beat a soldier over the back with it and break it. And then he would say, bring another vine branch to hit the soldier again. I'm afraid the mutinous soldiers killed him. 
It's very likely that not all centurions were like that, as we've seen from, our, uh, from thinking about the Russia at war at the moment. If you're a conscript and fear is the means you hold soldiers together, that's not a very effective way of building a fighting unit. So esprit de corps is important. But what of this centurion? He's probably not a Roman citizen. After all, at this point in time, there was no Roman legion in Palestine. It's more likely that Herod Antipas, the king, he'd pulled together a force of auxiliary troops from the surrounding areas. They were Gentiles, not Jews. And so you could imagine something of a mixed attitude here. Probably to this guy, there was a mixed attitude. On the one hand, it seems that people really appreciated him. So there's a parallel account of this account here in Matthew in Luke's Gospel. And in the parallel retelling, the Jewish people urge Jesus to heal the centurion's servant. And they give a reason. Quotes, because he loves our nation and built our synagogue. He was a benefactor. So there was a certain kindness. But on the other hand, of course, he was a Gentile. He symbolized occupation. Now, earlier, of course, if you've read through Matthew's Gospel, we'll have seen how Jesus had carried out extraordinary healings. So back to chapter 4, verse 23. He'd been teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So fame had spread far and wide. And now he's come back to his hometown, his home base, Capernaum. Here, thinks the centurion, is someone who could do something. So in desperation, Matthew says, he came to Jesus asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Do you notice how Matthew describes it? He says, asking for help. It's the same word that we find later on with the man with the legion of demons, when the demons beg Jesus to send them into the pigs. It's the same word that's used later on in that account. After the man with the legion of demons has been healed, and all the inhabitants of the area, they're terrified, they beg Jesus to leave the region. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 18 of the debtor saying, please forgive my debts. Matthew sees the desperation. He said he's asking for help. But there's something striking about what the centurion actually says. He says, Lord, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Let's see if you can spot the difference between these two statements that sometimes happen in my home. Darling, please would you take the bin out, and the bin is full. What's the difference between those two statements? The fact that you laugh means that you know they're basically saying the same things, aren't they? Kind of. But one is a kind of direct way of speaking, please would you take the bin out, And one is an indirect way of speaking. And do you know what this centurion does here? Did you notice? He just makes a statement. He just sets it out there. 
Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Just makes the statement. And he addresses Jesus as Lord. It could just be a polite term, but think about it for a moment. Here's a centurion. He's got the power. He's got the privilege. He's got the status. He's got the authority. So it might just be polite. Only certainly the way he expresses it is more polite, just giving this statement. But for us as readers, and certainly we see from what he goes on later to say, when we hear the word Lord, our cogs were in our heads. And we think to ourselves, Lord, kurios, that's the word that the Jewish people used to talk about God in the Old Testament. Lord. And then he speaks of my servant. It's not the standard word for a slave. It could indeed be a word for a child or a boy, but probably specially entrusted. And then it says that he lies at home. Perhaps more literally, he's cast down. And then he's paralyzed. As the picture gets built up, there's a lot of loss of movement. He's paralyzed. He can't move. But though he may be unable to move... He can certainly feel. Did you notice how he was described here? He was suffering terribly. It's the same word that's um, used of the man, the the legion of demons. They plead with Jesus not to torment them. It's when the wind blows through the wind and the waves and the sea is in torment as it's writhing. It was about 12 years or so ago that I went sledging with my wife and my two daughters Word of warning, don't do it. <laughs> it was uh, the end of the day. I finished teaching in North London. I was on the slopes in Barnet, that famous ski resort. <laughs> it was the end of the day. It was extremely icy. I had one of those thick plastic, those thin plastic sledges, you know, you sit on with the blue and red ones like that. And I was racing my wife down the hill, cheered on by our daughters. We went over, um, speeding down this hill. It was quite a close race. I went over this bump and banged down hard and let out a cry. I think possibly children thought it was a cry of victory or a cry of of effort. But I'd got to the bottom and I was lying paralysed because I'd fractured my spine. It was a compression fracture of the spine. And I lay there, unable to move, suffering terribly. But I imagine this is the kind of situation. It is not a place to swap places with. He was afflicted in great pain. No wonder this centurion was desperate. So he may be tough, but he's not callous. And Jesus recognizes the centurion is asking him to do something. A little bit like the bin is full. I don't know which Bible you were following, whether you, when you were following online. The traditional translation is, I will come and heal him. The recent translations, like the one we had earlier, said, shall I come and heal him? I wonder if I gave you a scale from zero, Jesus not enthusiastic at all to come, through to ten, very enthusiastic to come, where you would put Jesus on that map with those statements? Have you thought? Any ideas? You want to shout out? Five? Four? Don't want to shout out, don't worry. It's very striking. At this point, because you might think it's very positive, he's very enthusiastic. I'm going to come and heal him. 
But at this point in Jesus' ministry, of course, it's hardly likely that Jesus was keen to go into Gentile territory. After all, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus sends out his disciples and he tells them not to go among the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To be sure, soon the flood of Gentiles will come in, but not yet. And then there are many parallels between this passage and Matthew chapter 15. Do you remember with the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and pleads with him to come and heal her child? who is suffering terribly. And Jesus initially refuses and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She insists, famous phrase, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from under their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Sound like similar? Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that moment, same phrase or same word that we have here. Healing from a distance at that moment with a Gentile. So I think the force is much more likely here to be, I will come and heal him. Makes to me more sense of the original with the I at the start and then the flow of the events. Imagine the situation. It's... uh, Time for homework. Teenager comes home from school, um, plonk themselves down in front of the TV, phone out simultaneously, iPad out simultaneously. It's a free device session. And they seem fully camped there for the first part of the evening. And you're thinking, when do you say it's time to do homework? And eventually, they say, all right, I'm off to do my homework. And you think, at last. And 30 seconds later, they say, I can't do my homework. And you reply, and I'll do it. Is it an offer? A question? It's a statement? Or a rebuke in one sense? Just crack on with it. You've hardly started. You want me, me, to come and Heal him, me, a Jew, you, a Gentile, you don't know what you're asking. And then the centurion replies, verse 8. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Did you notice, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. It's the same word that John the Baptist used of Jesus. Do you remember early on when the the issue about baptism, John the Baptist says, I'm not sufficient to carry his sandals. So it's not about race that you're a Jew and I'm a Gentile. It's not about somehow class or anything like that. It's that you, Jesus, have authority and majesty. That means I am against you. I am nothing. And more than that, you don't even need to come to my house. You just have to speak and it'll happen. You just have to say the word. That's the world I come from. I know what it's like to have authority. I know what it's like to be under authority. I know authority when I see it. And Jesus, you've got it. 
for all a centurion's power and authority, he comes humbly to Jesus. Just that little statement. He doesn't demand, doesn't stand on status. He recognizes Jesus' authority. As one commentator, Don Carson, puts it, when the centurion speaks, Rome speaks. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. And what was Jesus' reaction? Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, yes, amazed, stunned, startled, amazed. Actually, quite a lot of people get amazed in Matthew's gospel. People are amazed at his stilling of a storm. People are amazed that he teaches with authority. People are amazed that he casts out demons. The crowd are amazed that the mute speaks, the crippled made well, and the lame walk and the blind see. The disciples are amazed that the fig tree withers at Jesus' words. The Pharisees and Herodians are amazed at Jesus' answer, paying taxes to Caesar. The governor Pontius Pilate is amazed that Jesus gave no answer to his charges. Lots of people are amazed. But where, where else in Matthew's Gospel? Does anyone know? Where else in Matthew's Gospel is Jesus amazed? The answer? Nowhere. Nowhere else. Nowhere else in Matthew's Gospel is Jesus amazed but here. Everywhere else, people are amazed at Jesus, his miracles, his teaching, his actions, his silence. Only here is he amazed. And what amazed him? Did you see what happens? He turns from talking to the centurion and turns to the crowd. It's this kind of moment if you're a film um, producer, you, the director, you can sense the camera pan moving from the centurion to the crowd who've been watching on. They've maybe followed him down the mountain. Verse 10. Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Are you listening, everyone? It's important, it's the truth, that you may find it hard to believe. I want you to take notice. I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This Gentile, this outsider, has shown all of you lot up. Ouch. What had he recognized about Jesus? What do you think he recognized? That he could heal? Well, absolutely. It was very striking, but others recognized the same thing. That he, could, uh, that, he, that he was helpless and he needed Jesus to heal. We heard that last night, but many others did the same thing, as indeed the leper did last night. That he could heal from a distance. No magic, no incantations, just with a word. He didn't need physical presence. We saw last night about Jesus' amazing tenderness as he touched the person with a skin disease who was unclean. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the man becomes clean. This was beautiful compassion and tenderness, but not necessary because he can heal from a distance. But if we're right in thinking there's a certain reluctance, it seems, that Jesus had, perhaps the faith is this as well. 
that it's even when it seems like the answer is no, it's still trusting, it's still looking, it's still asking when things are hard. And Jesus, of course, didn't flatter his hearers, did he? There was this candid diagnosis. Everyone today seems to be so concerned about other people's opinions, about offending anyone, especially in universities. You have the kind of warnings before debates and those kinds of things. This can be distressing for you. But Jesus was unafraid to say the truth. He wasn't pandering to the crowds. He wasn't trying to manage his profile. He wasn't concerned about social media or the Twitterati and the Twitter sphere. He wasn't concerned about being no platformed. No, the faith of the centurion has surpassed everyone in Israel. That is all of you who are listening to me, says Jesus. Because he recognized in Jesus what no one else had done. Uh, when my daughter uh, was at school, one of my daughters at school, she uh, sat in an arts lesson. Unfortunately, um, she inherited my wife and my art ability. In fact, uh, she's a lot better than us. Nonetheless, having produced her work of art in the class, the teacher came up, picked up a piece of work and held it up and said, this is exactly what you should not do. Now, I would have to say, I don't think that's a model way of teaching. But Jesus, of course, in a sense, does the other way around, says this is a model answer, but in so doing, he highlights the inadequacy, in one sense, of others' faith. But it's not that Israel hadn't, people in Israel had no faith, did you notice? They haven't had such great faith. But then Jesus pushes further in verse 11, and now he really pushes on the sensitive funny bone. Verse 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Has anyone received an invitation to a royal garden party? Yes, one or two have. No, I have not. I did have one moment um, when I was living in Oxford. Um, there was a new vice-chancellor. There was a 274th vice-chancellor in Oxford, and it was the first woman who became a vice-chancellor. I can hear the cheer. <laughs> and as part of the celebration, it was a champagne tea, and I was lucky enough to get an invitation. And I bumped into a number of residents from the local housing association. They were amazed to have got this invitation which they had. And there were a whole other bunch of people in the university with Professor this and, and so on who didn't get an invitation at all. And one day, says Jesus, there's going to be a banquet, there's going to be a feast, and there are going to be some surprises. Yes, there'll be Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, as you might expect. But there are going to be some on the guest list you wouldn't have expected. The Gentiles. When we talk about weeping and wailing of gnashing of teeth, that was often how the Jewish people of the first century spoke of the Gentiles and their destiny. And Jesus takes that destiny and reapplies it to the sons of the kingdom and says, many of these are going to be outside, though they thought they were in. 
The invitation now is not because of birth, but faith. Not because of race, but faith. It's not a Gentile takeover with Jewish people excluded or replaced. No, it's a new community, Jew and Gentile together. Surprising invitations, shocking exclusions. And the key? Faith in Jesus Christ and his authority. And then Jesus turns to the centurion, verse 13. Go, let it be done, just as you believed it would. A bit like a minister proclaiming in the marriage service. I proclaim them husband and wife. At that very moment, the word does the work and they become married. Or a a royal member of the royal family getting a champagne bottle and bashing it against the side of a boat and saying, I name this ship. As they speak, the word does the work and the ship is named. And Jesus' word itself does the work and brings healing. And the outcome is just as the centurion had believed. The servant, his beloved servant, was healed. It's a very simple picture. Jesus has authority. His authority is plain for all to see. And his authority is not like anyone else's because he can heal at a distance with a word. And only this Gentile centurion had none of the privileges saw it. Now, of course, we know the other side of the resurrection. Remember how Matthew's gospel ends? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is the one now, through his death and resurrection, has indeed matchless authority over the entire cosmos. All authority. And Jesus' invitation to us this evening is a very simple one, I think. Will you recognize my authority? Will you recognize my authority? To be sure he's got the expertise, he knows what's best. To be sure he's got the moral credibility, perfect integrity, the best interests of those he's going to. And he's got the power and the right to carry it out. There's a sober warning, of course, here, because not everyone who were the insiders then we're going to inherit this, we're going to be part of this because they missed out. It's possible that there are some here this evening. We've come, we've become church members, we've become religious in some senses of the word, but we've never really bowed the knee to Jesus' matchless authority. We think sincerity is enough and I can trim God's word as long as I'm sincere. So I like Jesus without the hard edges on money and generosity or love for enemies and forgiveness or sexual purity. And Jesus disagrees. You might think, well, that's rather an exclusive thing to say. It's a rather hard thing for him to say. But when I visit the doctor, I want, and I hope we all do, the painful truth especially if it's something that I can do something about rather than a sugary lie. But it needn't be this way. What does it look like for us to say yes 
yes, Lord, I believe in your matchless authority. I think at one level it means, Lord, I believe you can speak into the most intractable situation. Though the answer may seem to have been no, I believe with a, you can speak into it with a word and sort it out. I'm going to be committed to be a person of prayer. It's wonderful for a convention. We've got different ways we can join and pray together and keep coming because that's really what the centurion does. He brings his request to the God in prayer. Lord Jesus, I believe your word is true and powerful and need to submit to it, even when it's uncomfortable and costly. One of the things I love about the convention, and I love about this new site, isn't it amazing? Meeting new people. So a couple of days ago, um, I have to check with them, um, I met for about... Two minutes, just by one of the signs outside on the Rawnsley site, um, a couple, Steve and Irene. I went up to them, said, hi, I've not seen you here before. You know, new to the convention, you come to visit the convention. They said this was the third time they've come to the convention. I said, well, tell me about it. The, the first two times. The first time they came, they'd been a Christians for just about a year or so. And they came to the night when they're thinking about mission and they stood up and committed their lives to the cause of mission. And they joined Manchester City Mission. But Manchester... So I mean... Yes, Manchester City Mission. I thought I'm talking about a football club for a moment. Manchester City Mission. <laughs> <laughs> and they served there. The second time they came here, they, they again heard God speaking. They said, Lord, this, this is what you want us to be doing. And they sensed this, they needed to do something else. So they left Manchester City Mission and they set up a homeless charity in Manchester. And they, for the last, for 22 years until COVID, they ran this charity. They wanted to sit under the word of God and recognize his matchless authority. And this is the third time here. Steve and I, I don't know what the Lord has for you, but that's what he's got for each one of us. We heard it with Graham and Becky Innes, didn't we? But it's the same thing for all of us because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's why, again, our focus is on mission. Not, we don't have to all go to Ukraine or Moldova, but all of us are called to be involved in the cause of global mission and to give our lives to Christ. And again, one of the great things to think about dear Peter Maiden this afternoon, who made sure our horizons were always global. But because all authority is his, he's got matchless authority, that means we're called to go into education, the schools and universities, to go into science and research, to go into biblical studies and theology, go into business, go into the health sector, because all authority is his, and to be his ambassadors pointing to the matchless authority of Christ in those places. And the wonderful thing is here, any one of us can do that. Because this was the greatest outsider, the most unlikely person who had this face. The most unlikely. And maybe it's the first time tonight you think, I never come to Jesus for this. Uh, he was the great authority person, the one I can trust with moral credibility and with expertise and with power. And I've come to you tonight. And the great thing is, he can bear the weight Whatever other leader may let us down, the Lord Jesus Christ won't. 
Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing this evening if he was amazed at our faith? Shall we pray? When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Lord, we do in many ways feel like uh, one of the uh, New Testament characters. I do believe, help my unbelief. Help us to keep trusting, to keep looking to you, to have a bigger and bigger vision of you, not to look inside ourselves for greater faith, but to look to you as a greater saviour. And so we do pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd write these words on our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.